0: You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something.
1: This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
2: Live at the Apollo
1: transformed James Brown from king of the Chitlin circuit to the godfather of soul. I'm Greg Cott, And I'm Jim DeRogatis. As the hit movie tells fans to get on up, we dissect James Brown's classic album with writer R.J. Smith and later we'll review new records by the New Pornographers and FKA Twigs. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions. If you're listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim Diorgatis here with Greg Cott, and that is the unmistakable Yelp of the hardest working man in show business, James Brown. The legendary performer's life has been captured in one of the summer's hit films, Get On Up, and what a life it was. Too much to capture in any single film or radio show, which is why we want to focus on his 1963 album, Live at the Apollo. That's one of its tracks, I'll Go Crazy. The album was recorded over 50 years ago in Harlem and was transformative for Brown's career, for soul and for funk music, and for musical history. In 1962, Brown was an A-list African-American singer with hit singles like Please, Please, Please and Try Me, but he wasn't really known to white audiences. Live at the Apollo changed that. It catapulted him from the segregated Chitlin circuit into the national spotlight. Live at the Apollo was also groundbreaking musically. Brown was no longer playing straight-ahead doo-wop and soul. In 1962, he was experimenting with funk rhythms. To help us dissect this
2: classic album, let's turn to music writer R.J. Smith. He's the author of The One, the life and music of James Brown. R.J., welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, it's great to be here. So, this phenomenon that was James Brown, one of the greatest cultural figures of the 20th century... The myth was that he was born dead. This is the story he kept telling about himself. Born destitute, born extremely poor... The young James Brown was not a promising figure, right? There was no way to tell that this guy was going to be a guy who reinvented music 20, 30 years later.
3: No, that's right. There wasn't any reason to believe he'd be alive. (laughs) You know, I shouldn't be laughing. There's no reason to believe he would be alive or on the streets or, or doing anything because he was born into intense poverty. He was born in 1933 into maybe the 17th or 18th century in backwoods South Carolina walked with his dad as a boy to Augusta, Georgia, when he was about six, and there grew up, you know, in his aunt's house of prostitution. It was a terrible existence, and he had to fight and fight and fight for everything he had.
0: I want to let the world know today that this is my testimony, do so I want you to know that God is good. God is good.
4: God is
0: good. And he's my everything. He's my everything.
2: Now, the nexus of gospel music and soul, gospel turning into soul, that was a huge influence on young James as a musical figure. What was the role that the church and gospel music played in uh, young James's life?
3: James Brown has a really interesting, and I bet not particularly unique, relationship to gospel and the church. He studied it and listened to gospel music intensely. He went to a lot of different churches in Augusta, and he, he took notes on all of them. I don't think he was deeply religious. I don't think he would have said he, at that time in his life he belonged to one church, but he was studying the way that singers and preachers communicated and breaking it down and incorporating it into his daily life.
1: I love the way you put it in the book, R.J., Brown was steeped in gospel, he just didn't go to church much. (laughs) Do you
0: know, do you know, God is good, can a scream, Lord, he's my everything, he's my
4: shepherd, he's my shepherd, and a
0: child.
2: So gospel music's in the air. He uh, obviously loves it in many ways, the delivery. He studied the mannerisms. What about the flamboyance? There was a lot of different influences coming into that as well, the hairstyle and the way he presented himself to the public on stage.
3: Oh, yeah. To backtrack for a second about studying, James Brown, he grew up in an abusive household where his dad was violent. Uh, in his Aunt Honey's brothel, there were lots of violent people. And he had that classic abused child's ability to gauge the emotional weather of the room around him. And that's something that would come in very handy later on as a performer. around clap your head.
0: Come on it ha, ah, listen to
3: In terms of the hair and the style, yeah, he was studying Little Richard and studying the preachers who had their hair piled way up high. (laughs) He was not a tall guy, so he needed hair that that would add a couple more inches onto him along with the heels he was wearing.
0: (laughs) ¶¶ I got a girl named
4: Sue.
0: She knows just what to do. I got a girl named Sue. She knows just what to do. She rock to the east. to rock to the west. But she's a girl that.
2: One of the sections in your book that I love the most is when he steps in to Little Richard's band, and and the idea was they're going to pass him off as Little Richard. He's going to tour with (laughs) the band. Little Richard's off in L.A. recording music, and they go, you just take Little Richard's band out on tour, and you impersonate Little Richard.
3: (laughs) It doesn't sound possible. Little Richard was on the verge of becoming Little Richard, the superstar, uh, and he just blew town, Macon, Georgia uh, for the West Coast, and left his manager with a lot of dates to fill. So... (laughs) You know, the manager also was managing this young kid named Brown, and he put him in front of Little Richard's amazing live band, The Upsetters, and took them on the road. Little Richard had a few records out. He wasn't a huge success yet. People might have known some of his music. They probably didn't know too much what he looked like. So Brown could usually kind of get away with it. And he also had a new goal now. He wanted people to know that, he could outdo Little Richard on the stage, and he was better than the guy they thought they were coming to see. Please,
4: please, 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 I love you so.
2: talk about the band a lot in the book, R.J., and a series of bands. This Chitlin Circuit training that they went through was a huge part of that. So, you know, you go from 56 when he has his first major hit, Please, 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 to the Apollo show in 62. There was a lot of training in between that, getting that band up to shape, getting that show together, right?
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was about the live show for James Brown. You know, he loved having hits. He needed them to just to keep on the road. But he wasn't making a lot of money from the hits. The hits, the records tended to be like calling cards. You know, you could get to the next town if there was a new song that the audience wanted to hear. You might be the one show they were going to hear that weekend, that week, that month, people with not a lot of disposable income you know, you better have a new show. You better show them something you didn't have the last time you were in town. So that was the Chitlin circuit. You had to perform. You had to have new material. You had to really be theatrical on the stage.
1: You know, R.J., the Chitlin venues tend to get romanticized from this point in time. Mm -hmm. Tell us, though, what were these places that he was playing really like? What'd they smell like? What'd they taste like? Oh, (laughs) well, the Apollo Theater was not the Chitlin circuit. The
3: Chitlin circuit were uh, tin shacks. They were tobacco barns. They might have been swimming pools that had been drained out and they had a bandstand put in at the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> they were any place that uh, had some room that was allowed to have black people gather in public to, to hear some entertainment. In the South, that's a big deal, not easy to come by. They were fly-by-night, you know, desperate places and, and fire traps. They were mm. not uh, picnic spots.
1: And Harlem's Apollo Theater in 62, when Brown got there. Well, the Apollo
3: Theater is sort of the next thin layer above the Chitlin Circuit, this great league of African-American halls, theaters, like the Regal in Chicago, of course, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Howard in Baltimore and D.C. The Apollo was the crown jewel. The Apollo is a beautiful building and still is today, and it was the place that somebody like James Brown or Ray Charles or Mary Wells just aspired to, to headline at. I said, I
0: feel all right. I want to know all of you over
4: here feel all right. I want to know all of you over here feel all right. Let me hear you say you feel all right. Oh, oh, oh yeah.
2: Now, how did he get to the point where he could headline the Apollo? We're talking about 1,500 people, series of shows. I mean, James Brown was obviously pointing to these dates in October of 62 as as extremely important, a big moment for him, to the point where he wanted to record the show, right, against the wishes of his record label president, Sid Nathan, who thought, you know, it was a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. Explain what James was thinking and why Sid Nathan thought this was such a horrible idea.
3: James saw really clearly, well, he always wanted to be huge. He wanted to be, you know, Sinatra or gary cooper big he wanted to be in the movies he wanted to be everywhere
0: now wait a minute you bring up an interesting subject your birthplace was augusta georgia
3: that's the georgia you went
0: back there and bought the radio station right then two more you fly all over the world in a jet <laughs> oh, wait a minute all you right. break all the records all over the world now you mean to tell me you'd trade that in and settle down on a farm somewhere well i don't i don't mean all of it but maybe some <laughs> is there anything you haven't done that you want to do i'd like to do movies i'd like to have so i, I think uh... that's your next thing
3: James also saw clearly that a place like the Apollo Theater was likely to be as good as it got for him, uh, by and large, unless something radical happened, unless he found a way. His show was his art form. The singles were important and great and and sold the show, brought people into the hall, but his show was his thing. And he believed correctly that if America could hear that show, America would want to hear him, and, and it transformed him from being... A-list, top-of-the-line, African-American star playing largely African-American venues to being a great American star.
2: Nathan didn't think this was such a hot idea. It wasn't going to work. (laughs) What's the point? (laughs) Why do you want to record a live album? Which was not all that common at that time.
3: I mean, Sid Nathan didn't really... He was the old-school, colorful, loud-suited, wide-tied, chubby, short, white guy with a cigar in his (laughs) mouth all the time.
4: This is a... a, uh, you might say, a discussion of how King Record Company is to be run. Unfortunately, you or other people may disagree with me 100%, but somebody has to be the chief, and I am elected
3: as the chief. Singles paid his bills, and he didn't understand why would you put an album out with a bunch of songs that we'd already released as as singles. You know, the, the audience wasn't getting anything new. It was the old stuff they'd already heard. He didn't press a whole lot of albums. Any In any case, he pressed like a thousand or so, and then if those sold, only then could you pry the money from his hands <laughs> to put out some more. Mm. He was a tight with a buck, like James Brown. So how does Live at the Apollo finally get released? Mm. So he records this album, and he's got the tape, which he paid for himself to, to, to make, and they take it back to King Records and Sid and so Nathan still doesn't want to put it out. <laughs> so James Brown had a couple copies pressed up on his own. When the band was going from town to town, he had DJ friends in every town, and he would slip them a copy of the record, and they'd play it that night or the next night, and people would start to call and say, we love this. What is this? Where can we get this? And the DJs started calling up King Records and kind of forced Sid and Nathan's hand. When, when they were saying, we love this record, we want to play it, but, our, but, we, but it's not out, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that got Sid off his dime and finally got him to release the album.
2: So he had a vision about what the album could do in an era that really wasn't about the album. James Brown said, no, you need to hear my whole thing in this long form. And it sounds like from your research that some of these DJs were in fact playing the entire album on their their (laughs) night shifts at these prominent R&B stations around the country.
3: You know, the thing about it, it's so seamless. You 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 drop the needle down on the beginning of side one, and where do you take it off? You know, there's <laughs> there's there's very few obvious spots where you can just lift it off and, and go into another tune. So, you know, it was a great uh, record for DJs to put on when they had to go to the bathroom. It, it was also just, uh, you know, it was a different kind of experience. And it, it changed the radio from being a collection of different kinds of songs and different performers to being... A whole lot of James Brown, which James Brown liked a lot. Oh, oh,
4: oh, oh. I don't mind don't love.
0: I don't mind what you. But I know I know You're gonna miss me I don't mind mind. Your love sick so I don't mind mind. Can't go But I know you gonna miss me.
1: You can listen to our James Brown playlist at beatsmusic.com. There you can follow sound opinions for all of our custom playlists. We'll continue looking back at the James Brown classic live at the Apollo in just a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, Greg and I review the new album from AC Newman, Nico Case, and the rest of the new pornographers.
4: Yeah.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot with Jim DeRigatis, and today we're revisiting our 2012 classic album dissection of James Brown's transformative 1963 album, Live at the Apollo. This was the album that brought not just James Brown, but the James Brown live experience to national audiences. To tell us more is R.J. Smith, author of
1: a definitive biography called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. Brown recorded live at the Apollo on an historic night in Harlem 50 years ago, and it's a groundbreaking record in a few ways. As we've said, not many artists were making live albums in 1962, but there's a lot of musical innovation on this record as well. R.J., you refer to that in your book's title, The One. What is The One?
3: Well, The One is, uh, on one level, it's the emphasis on that first beat of The Measure, that he wanted the band to hit harder. The one was also a way for him to stage manage a show. He was making it up as he went along, giving the band constant hand signals or audibles like a quarterback he was telling them instantly you know this song's not working we got to switch to uh, try try me or we got to go to a rocker the ballads aren't playing so he's constantly sending signals he's doing things running from one side to the other and he's always using that first beat as a way to say when we change we're going to change on the one as you'll hear on live at the apollo the beat keeps going it might slow down but the beat's still there and the changes tend to happen on that first beat from song to song. It's this amazing symphonic suite or something.
0: Oh, why do you do me like you do? You made me lie you But I feel so You made me do And I Want you so bad? I love you,
1: yes, I do. I love you, yes, I do. I now, RJ, one thing I'm sure you—I was surprised you didn't touch on October 62. This weekend, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The world yeah. is going to end, possibly, at any moment. How does that play into the show that Brown delivers in Harlem? Oh, my gosh. It, it
3: must have played into it hugely. I don't know that Brown ever spoke about it, but it had to have been there. It was there on everybody's minds. The world might end. Where are we going to be tomorrow? Are we going to be doing what we did last night? And here was a show where nothing else mattered but this moment. It was all about being there with this amazing star who made you forget about everything else and all that existed was the now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a rich moment. I don't mind, I don't mind. Your love I don't
0: mind, I don't mind The one you think of But I know I You gonna miss me.
2: The show itself was just on another level in terms of what was going on in R&B and soul at the time. R.J. Describe oh, yeah. the differences between what Brown was doing and what everybody else in R&B and soul was doing at the in 1962.
3: Well, one thing he was doing was when he played the Apollo, he played with his own band. They had a, a fine show, busy classic house band that backed all the other artists and that made them all sound sort of similar, which was good if you were packaging a whole evening of entertainment, but terrible if you were a band leader, a James Brown, and wanted to stand out from the crowd. He had an amazing band. That made a big difference. He just knew how to read an audience and feel what they were feeling and to know what they wanted almost before they they knew themselves.
0: Now I want you to know I'm not singing a song for myself now. I'm singing a song only for myself now. I'm singing it for you too. And when I say something that makes you feel good inside, when I say that little thing, I say that little part that might sting you in your heart now, I want to hear you scream. I want to yell
3: you say... He was a dancer, he was a presence, he was an actor on a stage, and he was a singer and a band leader. And he put together this whole show. It unfolded in real
1: time, and no two shows were alike. Let's go back our day to that word, singer. <laughs> mm, mm. You wax rhapsodic in the book about <laughs> the scream. It is an yeah. ugly sound, always has been. Brown was thrown ugly all over the Apollo. <laughs> mm.
0: I feel so good, I want to scream. I want to scream. I feel just like I want to
1: scream. What's the magic of that scream? Because a lot of people, you know, it is easy to parody James Brown.
3: Yeah, yeah. And and as his career goes on and his voice gets more frayed, that definitely becomes truer. He never had a beautiful voice. You know what he was great at? He was a short guy. He wasn't an athletic build. He wasn't conventionally handsome. He was amazingly dark-skinned for a star, uh, up even on the black circuit, that all these things were unlikely. He knew how to make the hand he was dealt the winning hand.
1: He he was short like Napoleon was short. <laughs> didn't didn't <laughs> yeah. hold him back. But you know, he didn't do it alone. You never hesitate not only to give the drummer some, but to give mm-hmm. everybody in the band some. And you've called Lewis Hamlin, Brown's musical director, the key player on Live at the Apollo. What did mm-hmm. he bring to the party?
3: He he really, I think, was the great unsung hero of of that night and that record. He was the music director, sort of the band leader. He was the guy that understood the importance of of watching the man as he performed on stage. I don't know that Brown even was consciously saying, watch me because when I dip my shoulder, that means I want you to go into uh, something faster or whatever. He, but he just did it and expected the band to understand, <laughs> and he'd find them when they didn't. Well, Hamlin Hamlin was really well-versed in the language of James Brown. (laughs) He communicated what Brown wanted to the rest of the band, and that made him incredibly valuable.
2: You really hear it in that one track, Lost Someone, this Mm -hmm. 11-minute song that's really the centerpiece of the album.
0: Ah, I lost someone A million to one Ten thousand people some someone. Someone. The
2: only one.
0: Just
2: a Brown isn't just playing the song, he's playing the band, he's playing the audience, I mean, which is responding in kind. That's when you realize this is why he wanted to make a live album. There's no way you can contain what happens in that song in a three-minute single.
3: That's that's an amazing, you know. It's like eleven minutes, and on the original vinyl, it was the last song on the first side, and it continued on as the first song on the second (laughs) side. Mm -hmm. It it is all about him talking to the audience, the audience talking back. There's, as you say, there's amazing call and response.
0: You don't have to tell me, but I believe somebody over here, somewhere. I believe, I believe somebody would there, someone
3: At one moment, you know, in the 11 minutes, the, the bass player kind of wanders off, and then the guitar player wanders off with him. Kind of the chordal underpinnings of the song get a little lost, and Brown just says, uh, he's preaching, and he's preaching. He says, you know, we all get a little lost sometimes.
0: And I got something I want everybody to understand huh? You know we all make mistakes sometimes. And all the way we can correct our mistakes.
3: We got to try one more time. He's talking to the band, he's talking to the audience. He's just talking. And then he's got
2: these these really tight medleys where he's going from one track to another. In no time at all, the changes are incredibly fast and incredibly dexterous.
0: I'm blue, and I'm everything, I,
4: everything
2: I do is wrong Be yeah. Was this all on the fly? How much of this was rehearsed and how much of this was absolutely in the moment where the band had no idea where he was going to go next?
3: I think they had some set things, like some traveling music, you know, some music that would get them from one song to the next, and it, that that music might be the last hit, you know, maybe an instrumental hit, or, uh, or that kind of thing. It's also, you know, what it's a little unclear to me. My sense is that um, the the engineer, after he got the recordings, uh, is probably doing some chopping out you know, maybe moments when Brown is dancing on the stage or Brown is doing his Cape Act or theatrical things are happening that we can't see in our living room playing this album. So it's a little hard to tell how much Brown is editing on the stage and how much an engineer or somebody's editing afterwards.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned play and you mentioned the Cape Act. We've got to touch on that because this whole night, was something of a theatrical production as well as a musical one. I mean, it can't be denied.
0: So
3: now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time national and international known as the hardest
4: working man in show business, man that's saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've
3: got the power. Think.
4: If you want me, I don't mind.
2: You know, right from the opening bell when you've got Fats Gonder coming out there giving that iconic introduction to the end with the, with the Cape Act. Talk about that whole death resurrection bit that, that Brown is going through in, in this show.
3: Oh my gosh, yeah, the Fats Gonder, that opening, that that whole setup is just, it makes your heart race. <laughs> Knight, the
4: amazing Mr. Please Please
0: Himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame.
3: The Resurrection, you know, early 60s is when James Brown started using the, the cape in his act. He would... Fall to his knees. He can't go on. The the power of the moment. He's given the, the audience everything he's got. He might die, you think, because he's falling <laughs> on the floor. And of course, his valets or the or the famous flames come out, and you know they pat him on the back like deacons in a church, and you know which is exactly <laughs> what they were at that moment. Mm-hmm. And and they say, you know, sir, sir, we got to get you out of here. And he comes back out and he sings some more, and they, and they drape the cape over his shoulders, and it goes on and on and on. <laughs> It was overpowering theater, and it was a religious kind of event.
2: You know, it's interesting to hear where James Brown's music is at this point, RJ. It's not quite funk yet, but you can definitely hear the shape of it starting to take place. You know, it's definitely yeah. steeped in the old soul doo-wop, the harmony singing that he sang on the street corner and those early tracks that he's playing on this record. By the end, when you get to Night Train, and what's interesting to me about the version of Night Train they play on the record is that it's not the version that was released as a single, you know, earlier. it's a, They've reinvented the song already, and a lot of it's organized around Phillyaw's kick drumming on, on that particular oh, song. Oh,
3: yeah. Phil was a, a southerner from Florida with deep Louisiana roots, and he had that New Orleans style in his drum playing, that funky new sound that was changing rock and roll, uh, changing rhythm and blues into rock and roll. It, it's not that old rhythm and blues shuffle, ch 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 it's much steadier and faster. The beat's getting divided up to 16th notes, and that kick drum is guiding things. Yeah, it's a whole new language coming coming together, and, and it's fun. ¶¶
1: We've talked about live albums not really being popular in the early 60s, and Brown was a pioneer of that form. R.J., what did he learn making Live at the Apollo? Well, Brown
3: loved ballads, and he was always a part of how he defined himself, especially, it seems like, in the early to mid-60s. But what he found when when the album came out was that all audiences, white and black, they loved the ballads, but they were responding to the upbeat stuff. They were responding to the screaming and the energetic band. That, that sort of got him to thinking, I suppose, about souping up the band. Oh, He still always played ballads because he liked them, but uh, keeping the energy level at a certain premium. I just
0: like romantic, that you. I think about the hard time, that I you now I think about the that i
2: So, R.J., here's this amazing record. that comes out, it lands like an A-bomb once people sort of figure out James is sort of reinventing the game. Fifty years later, we're still talking about it. What's its significance in... Not only James Brown's history as a leading 20th century music figure, but in music history in general, where does this record sit with 50 years hindsight?
3: Well, I guess I'd give you a two-part answer. The first part would be, you know, the, the music writer would say, you know, he invented the live album or really transformed it and made people care about it for his career, it made him a radio star. You know, the the record was on the pop charts for like 66 weeks in a row when it finally came out. But on another level, you play that record now and it's still shocking. It's not the background. You can't be vacuuming your your, your <laughs> living room or doing the dishes or doing homework and listening to this thing. You're in that room screaming with James Brown. It is just an amazing piece of
1: theater that pulls you in and uh you can't fight it well we could just talk forever with rj smith but we wanted to focus on the apollo it's an incredible book the one the life and music of james brown rj thanks so much for talking to sound opinions
3: no thank you for having me guys it's great talking to you
1: what are your thoughts on live at the apollo does the record still give you the chills Share your thoughts at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I review two new albums that people are talking about from Canadian power pop supergroup The New Pornographers and R&B newcomer FKA Twigs. That's after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
0: Take me home Boston, Massachusetts Boston, Massachusetts And don't forget New Orleans, the home of the few
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that is the title track from the New Pornographers' sixth studio album, Brill Bruisers. The New Pornographers are a Vancouver-based band. They were started by a singer, songwriter, musician, Alan Carl Newman, A.C. Newman, in the late 90s. Newman had been hanging around that Vancouver scene in a bunch of indie bands throughout that decade formed the new pornographers in 2000, included his friends Nico Case. Nobody really knew who Nico Case was back then. She was a great singer on on that Vancouver scene. And a guy named Dan Behar, another up-and-coming songwriter who would go on to form the band Destroyer. Now, Case and Behar and Newman, in fact, have all gone on to have very successful careers outside of the New Pornographers, but every few years they get together with this group to make an album. The first four New Pornographers albums, in fact, uh, defined indie rock for a lot of people in the 2000s. All four of those records placed in the top 40 of the Village Voice Paz and Jop poll that particular year. Now they're on album number six, Brill Bruisers. It's their first studio release since 2010. Here's a track from it called Dance Hall Dominate from the new pornographers on Sound Opinions.
1: Song Dance Hall Dominate by the New Pornographers from their sixth album, Brill Bruisers. And Greg, I am loving that song. I- pushed hard for us to play that one in particular. It's the uh, my favorite single of the summer after that bass hit that's been all over the place. You know, I'll tell you, I was I was reluctant to even review this new, new Pornographers record, not because I don't like them, but because I'm kind of tired of them. I feel like I've heard everything this super group can do. And then there's all the Dan Behar records, there's all the A.C. Newman records, and there's the Nico Case records, which I'm a, a big fan of. It's interesting, though. This is coming from a different place, and this record really surprised me. I never prejudged, I just wasn't eager, and then it blew my mind when I started playing it. Newman, in his last uh, solo album, was very down. He was talking about deaths in his family. So was Nico Case." Now they've kind of come out of that gray cloud, and they've made what Newman is calling a celebration record. And I think this has some of the finest songs on it, starting with Dance Hall Domine, but also including uh, War on the East Coast, the Behar song, and Marching Orders. I think some of the s- finest songs they've ever come up with. Now, everybody talks about Nico. Everybody talks about Behar and his kind of Brian Wilson role here. And, of course, it's A.C. Newman's band, really. But the MVPs here are Blaine Thurier, who is the filmmaker and cartoonist who, who plays synths. And there are just mo wonderful Moog sounds and vocoders all over this album. And Catherine Calder, who doesn't get any respect, you know, when you're singing besides Nico Case, right, it's like the Kelly Hogan problem. You're, you're, you're singing besides this incredible voice. But I think Catherine Calder really uh, rises out of the mix here, and it's her voice that's sucking me in on many of the best songs, including Dancehall Dominé. So from being not very excited about the prospects of a new Pornographer's album to absolutely thinking this is maybe my favorite of everything they've done, I'm giving it a big buy it. Well, here's a
2: real rarity, Jim. I actually agree with both of those points you made about this record. <laughs> um, the keyboards, especially, are I think the key to this record. I think there's much more emphasis on those keyboards on this record than there, than there has been on any previous New Pornographers record. And I think it's a real positive change for the band it lends that up-tempo almost dancey vibe that this record has they've never made a record that is so exuberant and that's really saying a lot but there's just a surging quality to this music and the keyboards play a big part of it and you're absolutely right about katherine calder Really, an unsung hero in this band for her multi instrumental abilities and also her harmony vocals, and also you know stepping to the fore out front, uh, she sings. I think the song of the record with uh, Dan Behar, "Born with a Sound." You know, I gotta love the way Newman shares in this band. He lets the he lets the all of his sidekicks. I mean, it's basically a democracy of of equals here. The way Newman runs this band, but that song. Born with a sound a lot of people have always given Newman and the New Pornographers a little stick because they're they're very oblique in the way they express themselves it's all about the sound rather than the sense but i think that song born with a sound really conveys Uh, what this record was about. I heard a sound in my head, but I couldn't find the words to get it out. Now I know love is the way, get it out, get it out. It sounds almost sentimental, me saying it out loud, but in the context of the way it's performed in the song, it is a really powerful moment, really expressing that coming-out-of-the-darkness feel that this record has. It's a buy-it record for me.
1: That's a song called Pendulum by an artist named FKA Twigs from her debut album, appropriately titled LP1. Greg, it's a fascinating backstory for this young woman born... Talia Barnett, half Jamaican native of Gloucestershire in the farmlands of England. Surrounded by cows, she grows up digging the music from a Jamaican youth club and devoting herself to dance. Apparently a really great ballet dancer early on moving into the pop realm by the time she's 17 and appearing in videos for songs by Jesse J and Kylie Minogue, among others. But she had a dream to make music of her own. Made an EP in 2012, put it out there on Bandcamp and it started to get a lot of buzz in the UK. Later, she came with a second EP featuring production work by Kanye West collaborator Arca and now comes her first full album. Two hit singles already from it in the UK, that song that we bumped with Pendulum and the next one I'm going to play. This is called Two Weeks. It's by the artist called FKA Twigs. LP1 is the album on Sound Opinions.
2: Two weeks from LP1 from FKA Twigs on Sound Opinions. Jim, this record is one of those obsessive things. You either love it or you hate it. You have to completely immerse yourself in it because it sounds alien. You know, you think, well, it's an R&B record or whatever, but there's some really strange avant-garde style R&B being made these days. I'm thinking about people like The Weeknd and Mm -hmm. Solange and... You know, Blood Orange, Dev Hines of Blood Orange is actually one of the producers on this record, even though there's a a range of producers, uh, some big names, Paul Epworth, Dev Hines, Emily Haney, who's worked with Eminem, Clams Casino. Uh, It sounds very cohesive, mainly because I think FKA Twigs, uh, Talia Barnett, had a hand in everything here. She's the co-producer, she is the co-songwriter on a number of the tracks. She's very hands-on in terms of the way this entire record sounds and it does work as an album, as a mood piece. I would have wished for a few more hooks. I think when uh, she steps it up in that area, Two Weeks and Video Girl, for example, being great examples of what can happen when, when she does focus a little bit more on the melody with the vocals, but I think the soundscapes combined with her voice, it's kind of otherworldly is a fascinating combination. You know, you get the sense of distortion that's speeding up, slowing down. They're playing with tape speed. They're playing with this kind of mind-altering production. Drums don't really sound like drums in some tracks. There doesn't appear to be a rhythm at all going on. It's just atmosphere. But it's fascinating when you drop into that world. And at first I wanted to resist it, but eventually won me over. Now it's one of those records where I'm thinking, this, this is
1: a candidate for the top ten at, at the end of the year for me. Wow. F- I'm, uh, I'm by it with this record. Well, look, I uh, gave this album a lot of time. I've been listening, I don't know, two dozen times over the last two weeks, and it never kicked in for me the way it did for you. I don't understand these comparisons to the new wave of alternative R&B. I'm hearing Kate Bush, and I'm hearing a really poor imitation of Kate Bush because Kate Bush has a fantastic voice, and I don't think that Miss Twigs does. I forgot to say in the introduction, you know, Twigs is the nickname from the ability she has to crack her bones so loudly, I guess because she's a dancer and she she moves a lot but I don't hear any movement on this record I don't hear any soul the other new R&B records like Solange, like Weekend, are about slow burn, right? But this is kind of like doused in cold water. I don't hear emotion. I don't hear soul. I don't hear passion. I hear somebody who wants to be Kate Bush but can't sing. There's some interesting production tricks, but that doesn't carry the day. And if it didn't catch my uh, attention after two dozen listens, uh, I got to give this record a trash it record for me. And here it is heading to your year's best. I don't know. Uh, I I think I'm right, Jim, as usual. So Ah! go with me. What do we have on the show next week?
2: Next week, Jim, we have a live appearance and interview with a new side project for Jeff Tweedy called Tweedy with his son, Spencer.
1: Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez.
2: Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888 859
4: 1800.
3: New messages. Hi, my name is Sophia Lucenti. I'm calling from Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm calling with regard to a comment in which you said that nowadays, it doesn't matter so much what somebody sounds like when their voice is isolated from the rest of the track, I'm making reference to Miley Cyrus and Beyonce. Uh, now, while this may be true, I believe that it is kind of a detrimental thing to say in that nowadays we
4: do place less of an emphasis on whether or not somebody is a good, knowledgeable singer, which is unfortunate, because that's really what draws you in. That's
3: really what Adds an individual flair to somebody's singing voice. Otherwise, this is going to be something bottled up and
4: packaged and sent out to the top 40. I can't believe how you looked at me with your James Dean glossy eyes, in your tight jeans, with your long hair and your cigarette state lips. Thank you very
2: much, and enjoy listening to your program. Hi, it's Chris from Logan Square. I just listened to the podcast about New Wave, and I was struck by your guest's comment that the uh, video for Rio, it wasn't sexist because they were doing it to the band. The woman in the video was doing it to the band, and it reminded me of the moments in Spinal Tap where the cover of the one album wasn't sexist
4: because the woman in the cover was doing it to the man on, in the band. Which
1: prompted the comment that it's such a fine line between clever and stupid. It occurred to me that New Wave really does a great job of skirting that line between clever and stupid,
2: between sort of navigating the insistent obnoxious cleverness of prog rock and the uh, sort of remorseless stupidity that is punk. So seems like a nice little moment to encapsulate the genre as a whole. My name is-
4: Chicago. I just listened to your Labor Day show, and I can't believe you didn't
2: include an artist who has an entire album entitled Labor. Aesop Rock. If you're gonna play one song of his, I was really hoping for Nine to Five's anthem. Otherwise, great show. Keep up the good work.
1: Sometimes I laugh at victory, kissing these little questions. Well, I tend to underestimate my average. savage. Someday you'll all eat out of my cold hand, cause every dog has its day. At which point I pull it away. Now.
4: Hi, my name is Anna Joy Bruins from Flagstaff, Arizona. I just listened to your working episode. Um, I would like to put in an opinion on a really Chicagoan writer named Stud Turkle that wrote the book Working, and he was able to adopt that into a musical. And the musical stars artists like Charles Derning, Barbara Hennessy, Patty LaBelle. Way back there, I had a Way back there. And I just wanted to throw that in there, perhaps for your next Labor Day working episode. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work, guys. If I could have been what I could have been, I could have been something.
1: No more messages.